0: Can I please have your attention? Welcome to another episode of the Remnant Podcast with me, Sarah Isger, hosting. And once again, I'm just gonna bring in people I really like to hang out with in my real life, which is kind of a remnant thing anyway, I guess. Today, we'll be talking to Kristen Soltis Anderson. You know her well, but just to be clear, she's a pollster and the founder of Echelon Insights. But also, I mean... Kristen, you and I met and bonded in a pool in Miami ten plus years ago, and what an okay. adventure the last ten years has been with you. Welcome. I only regret that we are not taping this episode together in the same
1: room with an enormous amount of whiskey, like Jonah does whenever he has Congressman Mike Gallagher on the show. Like that; those are my favorite remnant episodes, and I now regret my my choice of beverage, which yeah. is uh, Trader Joe's carrot juice. And not,
0: in fact. Oh, God, thing. that sounds awful. Why? Why? I'm like 15 levels. It probably is. But anyways, uh, Kristen and I both have a spindrift habit. Like we're really addicted to. I like the lemon spindrift. Well, I already bit... finished my spindrift. Oh, yeah, you did. So okay.
1: I'm like holding I'm holding all of my beverages up to the camera so that <laughs> she can see. I'm well hydrated around here.
0: We should do a drinking one of these. We'll kick Jonah off again. Um, <laughs> We drink plenty in our free time. <laughs> so, so yeah, Kristen, I don't know what, you're a pollster. So I guess we can talk about polls. I mean, you know, I have so many feels about the issue polls, but let's just start big picture. Um, I'm concerned that if the polls end up right this year, that that will also be misleading in a way. As in the only thing that actually matters is that the polls are right and we know why they are right like why they got better. If the polls just happened to be right, but then nobody changed anything, that doesn't necessarily give me a lot of comfort for 24. What are you going to be looking at when we actually get the results from election nights to determine what the poll's quality was this year and whether things have been fixed, gotten worse? I don't know, whatever. So my fear is
1: similar to yours, but not exactly the same, which is to say a lot of pollsters have actually changed things since 2020. And so nowadays, when you look at these polling averages, if you just grab the five most recent polls off of any of these averages, the odds are that each of them was conducted using a pretty different methodology. Um, Some of them are still pretty telephone heavy or telephone exclusive. Some, like the ones my firm does, they're all online. Um, But in the case of my firm, it's online online matched back to a known voter list, so it's not just complete internet randos, for lack of a more diplomatic term. Um, And then there are some people that are doing text to web. I mean, there is a lot of variation out there. And so I've encouraged people to think of this as experimental, right? We can be doing experiments to see what will work and what won't, which to your point means at the end, we may not necessarily know, ah, this is the one method that we ought to be using moving forward, Because let's say someone who's doing polling that is like objectively, methodologically disastrous, but is nevertheless just like putting their thumb on the scale to make it Republican, you know, four points more Republican, and they wind up being right. Everyone's going to think they're a genius. And actually, they're just like, you know, taking their crosstabs and writing in crayon, add four points to Republicans. (laughs) Like That's not actually methodologically good. But that could, I mean, there's, there is a non-zero chance that that's what happens. And so that's what worries me is that not that everyone's going to be right and it's going to like mask some underlying problem, but that like some people will be right and some people will be wrong and we will learn the wrong lessons about why the people who are right were right. Then again, if my firm is the one that's right, we've got it figured out and we've solved it. So.
0: This reminds me a little bit of sleep training, something you're going through right now. Oh God. Um, in which <laughs> like the, the science person in me wanted to only change one thing per night. And then if that worked, you do it again a second night, et cetera, et cetera. But then the uh, person going insane in me at some point gave up on the actual AB testing and was like, I will change five things a night. And if that works, then we'll just continue doing all five of those things. <laughs> And that's how I did. That's basically how my entire parenting strategy has gone, Um, (laughs) that we just do chunks of things that we change and we mark what those things are. And if it works, you just have to keep doing all five, including like patting your head and jumping up and down. Like it doesn't matter whether they make any sense. Like there are still black trash bags over the windows in Nate's room. I know they're not making any difference, but one of the last five bundles I put together involved the black trash bags. So here he is a year and a half later with black trash bags on all of the windows in his room. Hey, you
1: gotta do what you gotta do. When when the question is how much sleep am I gonna get? No one should shame you from the choices you make in service of that goal. <laughs> uh,
0: but what you said about the... You know, basically you could also have pollsters simply guess at what the end result will be and then backfill their poll and then say, look, I got it right. I feel like that's the entire 2016 experience that I had in several ways, not just polling, by the way, although I think there were several of those, um, but also simply people saying they predicted Trump to win. If you have enough people predicting something, some people will get it right. And it doesn't mean they're better or smarter. It just means that you had a lot of numbers there. And then the third bucket is the campaign that wins did everything right. And the campaign that lost did everything wrong. And that drives me insane. And I think this time it's going to be all about abortion in that context that like, and I don't know which way it'll go. Stacey Abrams loses. It'll mean that abortion was a terrible message. If Stacey Abrams wins, it'll mean abortion was a great message. I, I, unless I actually see evidence that abortion was a difference maker, which I'm open to, I feel like I'm about to see a lot of those headlines and send you rage texts about it.
1: Yeah, it's, it, it's the polling world is going to experience the, you know, who's right and who's wrong. Is it the online pollsters? Is it the phone pollsters? All of that. But there may well be someone who winds up like getting it right. And everybody thinks like, ah, they're they're a genius and they've got the secret sauce. I mean, I, and I, I don't say this to like, you know, throw shade at at any particular pollsters. I'm sure there will be people trying to read read between the lines of like, who is Kristen secretly insulting here? Um, the answer is is no one, uh, because I, I I don't necessarily know under the hood what all these other pollsters are doing. But I do know that in 2016, I sat in a green room across from an uh, a strategist who shall remain nameless who literally confessed to me that he was about to go on the round table that we were all going to be on. And he was going to say that he thought Trump would win, not because he actually thought Trump would win, but because like someone has to be the one to say it, right? Like it was, it was like, it was hedging. Um, you know, hey, if I'm wrong, no one will remember. But if I'm right, I look like a genius. And I, I do worry that there is a little bit of that going on out there with some some polling, but, but, I, uh, but I digress. I mean, the, the other thing that makes me nervous though, is the argument in favor of the take a crayon and add four to Republicans in your crosstabs uh, methodology, which is not what I'm doing and not what I would recommend. But you do find things like Nate Cohn at the New York Times has been doing this polling with Siena College. And they found that of all of the phone numbers they are calling, they have data on who they're calling. So they know who's going to respond and who's not going to respond. And they found that white registered Democrats were 20% likelier to respond to their surveys than white registered Republicans. So, you know, if, if that's happening, then you are going to wind up with, you know, you need some way to turn that the dial back down a little bit. And so it may be a little more sophisticated depending on how you weight your surveys and so on and so forth. But like numbers like that, they terrify me. And they are why I am, am telling people to be careful about overinterpreting what they're seeing in the polls.
0: Well, there's another scary part about that number too, because you, it may be, you can just turn up the dial on those who did respond, but that presumes that that 20% data gap are people who look like the people who did answer, who would respond otherwise, like the other white Republicans. And in fact, I think what we found a little bit is that actually probably not. There is something that those people in certain races... Are likely to respond to polls differently and far less likely to respond than their other cohorts who may look like them on paper. But the fact that they're not responding to a poll actually does tell us something meaningful about them.
1: Yeah. And and look, the pollsters got it were lucky for a really long time because if you were the type of person who didn't take a poll, you were also the type of person who might not have voted. Yeah. Um, and that's no longer the case. There are now people who are hyper-engaged in politics. They are super, super, super likely to vote. Um, and frankly, it is that super attentiveness to politics that has fueled their disdain and anger about polling and made them not want to talk to pollsters. So that has kind of scrambled the deck a little bit about who does and doesn't respond to polls in a way that has taken away this, like, natural advantage Poll political polling has had for a while. Bummer.
0: Um, so... I want to talk about Pennsylvania and Georgia, because there seem to be some parallels between the two races, and I kind of like that it's different political parties paralleling, and it makes it a more interesting comparison, because you can't sort of fall back on whatever your political prior feelings are. In both states, we have a gubernatorial race that's not particularly close, um, not in like our world close at least. In Pennsylvania, the Democrat is way ahead. In Georgia, the Republican is way ahead. Okay. Then in the Senate race, the Democratic Senate candidate had a terrible debate, a debate that in any other context might be the only debate that would have mattered. You know, 20 years ago, that debate would have potentially swung a vote 20 points or more, like huge swings. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Georgia, you have the Republican Senate candidate who has had frankly, other statements that are incoherent um, allegations made that would, again, swing that race wide 20 years ago. And yet here we are. Now, there aren't a lot of polls post the Pennsylvania Senate debate. Uh, The New York Times Siena poll just came out with theirs, and it was still mostly from before the debate happened. Um, They think only had one day or a few hours on that last day after the debate. but what are we going to learn about coattails, about split ticket voting, um, about sort of a, a highly partisan electorate that may not care who their Senate candidate even is, as long as the vote bot 9000 will vote the correct way once they're in the Senate? What's your take on, on Pennsylvania and Georgia? Well, it, you don't even have to just look
1: at Pennsylvania and Georgia to see this dynamic emerge everywhere of is, is split ticket voting a thing that can happen in the year of our Lord 2022? We know that polarization is huge. We know that partisanship is a massive driver of public opinion. And yet, in Ohio, it seems as though Mike DeWine is going to outperform J.D. Vance by a lot. It seems like uh, Josh Shapiro is going to outperform, regardless of who wins or loses that Senate race, Josh Shapiro will outperform Fetterman by a lot. And Brian Kemp is likely to outperform Herschel Walker. Now, again, Herschel Walker may still prevail, but the gaps between the governor and the Senate candidates, to me, are most interesting in that it debunks, if, if these gaps materialize at the ballot box, it debunks this notion that there are tons of voters out there who are Just like stuck in their ways, and they could never vote for someone of the other party. It reminds us that there are, in fact, swing voters, unconventional voters, people who take a little from column A, a little from column B. Um, In Pennsylvania, so my firm did a poll, and it was before the the debate. We had Fetterman up by three. Um, Our poll showed 43% Oz, 46% Fetterman, um, about 4% for uh, various third party candidates. And then you had 7% say, I don't know, or they refused to answer the question, or they were unsure. And that's the other thing that I think people don't realize when they're looking at a poll is they'll look at a poll like mine and they'll say, okay, well, you've got Fetterman up by three. Oh, but look, in the final result, it was only Fetterman plus one, or it was only Fetterman plus... Such a good point.
0: Yes, the undecideds.
1: that, like that 7% really matters. It really, really matters. And I'm, I don't think it would be useful for me to try to you know tell you, oh, I think all those undecideds are going to break for Oz. But it's, it's important. People look at the margin in a poll and they forget that there are those undecided voters out there. And I think in a year like this, it is more likely that they gravitate to the party out of power, that Republicans wind up in the end, a lot of those voters come back to the GOP. The other thing I would note, though, is in our poll, we asked some questions about the various negatives about each candidate. How much of a problem is Fetterman's record on crime? How much of a problem is the fact that Oz may or may not live in New Jersey? You know, those sorts of questions. And we asked, regardless of who you plan to vote for, do you think that John Fetterman's health is a problem or is it not a problem? Before the debate, 47% said not a problem, 39% said problem. I wonder how much those numbers would change if I were to do that poll today. I suspect it would change a little bit. And that could mean that ballot test goes from being a three-point Fetterman lead to it being more neck and neck. So that's the other challenge, right? Is we did this poll, then that debate happened, if Oz winds up winning, are people going to come to me and go, oh, your poll got it wrong. You said Fetterman was going to win by three. Well, I said that on October 21st, that Fetterman was in the lead by three, which is different than election day. So this is me just complaining as a pollster <laughs> that we get held responsible for things for which we should not be held responsible. But that's what the it podcast is true. Is for. I mean, I'd, I'd rather my poll get the result right. But realistically, you still got that chunk of voters out there that claim they haven't made up their mind. I don't know what they're going to do. And, and that will
0: determine which of these men goes to the Senate. Now, By Georgia, the way, I do think that cuts against the narrative on 2016 quite a bit that we don't talk about enough, that a lot of the polls that we say were so far off in 2016 were taken at or before that Comey press conference about Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. And so it's very possible that on October 15th of 2016, Hillary Clinton was ahead. And that on November 8th, she wasn't, and it doesn't mean the polls were wrong. It meant that there was new stuff happening. You know, I always thought you can look at those polls and when it was a referendum on Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton was up. When it was a referendum on Hillary, like it was over the summer, suddenly Donald Trump's numbers started climbing. Why would that be any different three weeks before the election, except that we didn't have a ton of polling data in those last few days? Yeah,
1: and there's, there's a limit to how much polling you can do right up until the bitter end. I mean, you've got to have time to get your data out of the field and do the correct data cleaning and modeling and weighting and all of that magic. And so, you know, I don't think it's likely that my firm is going to go do a public poll in Pennsylvania next week on Monday. And so, and you also have, by the way, the fact that there's early voting, like that adds a layer of complication. And so one of the big questions pollsters are dealing with is how much was 2020 about it just being a super weird year because we were in the midst of a global pandemic. And so if we're trying to like fix polling, how much of it is it like it? Twenty twenty wasn't to polling yeah. versus like 20, you know, if you want to go to your like sleep training analogy, like what if 2020 was just like a monstrously bizarre baby? And you're yeah. like, okay, well, I I did a lot to try to figure out how to get them to sleep, but like they're abnormal. Like that's not actually what it takes to put a normal child to sleep. And maybe 2020 is going to be the normal year. Who knows? All babies are wonderful. They're all strange in their own special way.
0: Some (laughs) babies aren't wonderful. That doesn't mean they won't be wonderful people or even just wonderful toddlers. But let's be real. Some babies are not wonderful. I had a friend who had like an exceptional baby. That baby was sleeping on like day four, happy, reading her own newspaper in bed. Like just really annoying, (laughs) wonderful baby. And of course, I mean, isn't this just like a life lesson? She thinks- at least in part, that it was all the things that she did, you know, they're like, well, I did this and this. And like, these are the people who write parenting books and it drives me insane. Like, no, your parenting experience is pretty irrelevant, frankly, to how your, your kids were. So then she just had a second baby. Uh, Joke is on her. (laughs) Not, not a sleeper. Won't go in the car. Screams anytime you put him near a car. If he sees a car, he, he screams. So, um, Yeah. I like baby analogies now for everything. I used to use them before I had a kid when I talked about dealing with reporters that there's actually like quite a bit of like stuff you can learn. Like you have to be really consistent. Like there need to be processes and you do the same one every time they learn really well with like a, you know, a consistent process, like a bedtime routine. Um, (laughs) If you make a threat, You've got to follow through on it. They'll learn really quick if you make idle threats. Never make an idle threat to a reporter. Like my book, All You Needed to Learn About Press, You Could Learn from a Toddler, it would be a bestseller among seven people. <laughs> I the, the bedtime routine is is very
1: strong. It, I think the bedtime routine is almost more for me than for my baby. For for your listeners who don't know, I have a four-month-old, my first child, so I am in like the thick of the sleep deprivation Night's things go well. I feel like I'm a genius. Night's things go poorly. I feel like I'm an idiot, even though it's really just nature's random slot machine, I'm sure, most of the time.
0: Back to politics a little bit. Let's just talk about books since I was talking about my fictional Everything You Needed to Know About Comms" book. You wrote a book called The Selfie Vote. And that book comes out in, in an era of another book that I wanna talk about as well. I mean, your book was about sort of this um, millennial generation coming up to have real political power in the voting sense as a real chunk of the electorate and how that would change our politics, how it could potentially change candidates. It's a great book and a very interesting read today maybe more interesting than it was at the time, actually. As a weird time capsule of a yes! moment before a
1: certain Donald J. Trump went down a gold uh, escalator.
0: It's so true. Yeah,
1: you know, it is. <laughs> um,
0: I actually, you ask people what the most important election of our lifetime was, and there's a really good thesis around it being 2012. And yeah, a lot of that's because it sends us on this path toward Donald Trump. And so you're like, yeah, but does that mean it was 2016? It, no, I actually think the, the 2012 thesis makes a lot of sense, but real quick, before, you know, in, in the run-up to wake of 2008, there was this demographics is destiny thesis as well going on. So you have the millennials coming of voting age, and you have a changing American demographic landscape, both of which were predicted to cement a democratic majority, certainly by 2022. Why hasn't that happened? And what do you look back on your book and think, wow, that was a hard thing. That was a turn that I didn't predict. Or, you know, if you wrote it again today, what would your update on millennials be? So on the the first thing to note is that millennials are old people now. I know, Um, I am one. (laughs) (laughs) I'm an elder
1: millennial. (laughs) About millennials. uh, We were the young ones. uh, You know, there's a whole chapter in there about you know, using platforms like Snapchat to reach millennial voters. And A, no one cares about millennials anymore. It's all about Gen Z. And B, I'm unclear who uses Snapchat. It, I'm sure it's still very popular and I'm just checked out. But like if I was writing that chapter today, it would be about Gen Z and TikTok. And who knows four years from now what what that will be. Um, so, you know, there are certain things in the book that I think, you know, aged more quickly than others, in part because just technology changes and, you know, the the pace of our politics and the issues that we're focused on have changed. Um, but one of the things that I really wanted to emphasize and that I think actually held up very well is back in 2012, the conventional wisdom on the right was that winning over young voters doesn't really matter and they'll all become Republican anyways And if you're going to win them over, you have to move left on social issues, but they're actually with you on economic issues. And my book was like, no, 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 no. Like, none of that is actually true. (laughs) Um, One, younger voters don't trust that markets are great and limited government is great. And that continues to be borne out through. I remember
0: that in your book. And I remember going like, I don't. That was where I was like, now they'll become Republicans or at least um, fiscal capitalism conservatives once they get out of school. Whew. I got that one way wrong. I mean, look, you were it could right. still happen.
1: I, I still dream that maybe one day it will happen. And and I also, I, like, I, I, I still to this day have to debunk a lot of like, oh my gosh, all the kids these days love socialism. Like, well. No, it's not
0: that. No, but it's almost it's like bad. a more fundamental. Uh, this is a weird comparison, but it's a little like the free speech stuff for me. It's that these fundamental values that were sort of handed down and you just kind of had to accept them. Capitalism is good. Civil liberties are good. That we have a generation, and frankly, look, we're elder millennials. These are somewhat the younger millennials and the Gen Zs. They don't accept that as inherent truth, right? They may uh, they they can certainly make arguments for it. Some of them buy into it, but they didn't just like take it in. They have challenged you have it to the whole show way. Your work. Yeah, you cannot just assert, "Well, this
1: plan will be great because we should let markets decide, and markets are the best way to create prosperity." you you have to go back and show your work a little bit more because those sort of platitudes are not accepted as gospel truth. And frankly, as millennials have aged, they have not they have not shifted like to the right as much as you might have expected. Now, that has been come made up for by the fact that Democrats now do terribly among Gen Xers. <laughs> like yep. Gen Xers have become crazy Republican. Um so they, you know, movement is I suppose possible. But millennials just have been so ugh, about Republicans for so long that I I continue to believe that it's it's going to be hard to imagine them swinging back. Generation Z, I, I have a piece that I just wrote um, at CNN.com about how what's fascinating is the extent to which Democrats keep failing to seal the deal with young voters. Right. So like Republicans have are you know conservative on social and cultural issues in a way that besides some elements of the free speech debate on campus is not really where young people are at, whether it's LGBT issues, um, we have seen a rise in the salience of abortion. And in my book, I I mentioned data that millennials were not dramatically more pro-choice than older voters. That's not the case for Gen Z. So like that now you actually do have a generation gap on an issue like abortion, Um, but it's economic and it's social issues. And that is all still very much in play. What I do think some of the Demographics Our Destiny stuff got wrong um, was, one, it assumed that the share of voters that Republicans had in, say, the white voter or white non-college educator voter group would stay constant, and that wasn't the case. So Sean Trendy, uh, he wrote an excellent book that predicted all of this, that even as Democrats may have improved their standing with voters of color or college-educated voters, Republicans' would then be boosting their share with, you know, the types of voters that gave Donald Trump victories in Michigan, Wisconsin, you know, all of that. Um, But also I think Democrats took for granted then that these groups like younger voters or Latino voters, like they'll be with us. So we can go down rabbit holes and like use words like Latinx in our presidential debates and like that'll be fine and it'll show how in touch we are. And instead, it's totally alienating. You combine that with things like defund the police, um, you combine that with the fact that it was more Democrats than Republicans calling to like shut everything down in the wake of COVID, which caused real economic
0: harm to a lot of Americans, particularly Latino Americans. Like We have yet to things. know the full extent of the harm because of the educational gap that we've now created. Thanks I mean, continue. disastrous, disastrous. Yep.
1: And so there's
0: there are a lot of reasons
1: why I think Democrats assumed, oh, well, Latinos are with us on immigration and healthcare. And so like, why would they ever vote for someone else? That would be crazy. Republicans don't like them. And instead they were like, I I think that's a little bit overblown. And also like, I live in South, you know, somebody may say, I live in South Texas and the border seems crazy and only Republicans seem to care about it. That's why you've seen Republicans make these huge gains in places like South Texas. All of which is to say, I still stand by the assertion that Republicans need to focus more on young voters and you can't just do it by like moving left on social issues for like a whole host of reasons. Like it's got to be a more thoughtful strategy than that. Um, but what is challenging now is so much of our politics is about like tribalism and personalities. And so to write a book about like how do you win young people over to the Republican Party that does not have the word Donald Trump in it, either as like a magnet attracting or repelling them, like that's that's tough. Like that definitely requires uh, a level of, of
0: updating. Fun little cul-de-sac, in the Supreme Court argument this week over affirmative action, the term Latin X was used many, many times by one of the advocates, and it was like a clanging bell to me, um, not in a good way, uh, well, on several fronts. One, you have a six-justice conservative majority. Why would you send someone up there who not only doesn't speak their language in terms of originalism and textualism, but like is signaling to them that they don't speak their language in a more literal sense by using a term like Latinx. Second, I thought it was also sort of a unforced error to use the term when you're talking about how you basically are the only one standing up for sort of representing these students by using a term that they themselves don't use about themselves. And that is kind of insulting to their language, yada, yada, yada. Um, It it was just sort of this stunning moment where we really do have these two diverging tectonic plates. And they're just heading in different directions. And nobody seems to care except like, frankly, this remnant of a few dozen of us (laughs) that are like, wait, why wouldn't you go to the Supreme Court and try to persuade them? Why wouldn't you run a Senate campaign to try to persuade young voters to at least think about maybe voting for you at some point down the road? Uh, We don't seem to be there right now. Persuasion, and especially when I think about this younger generation, um, my impression is that persuasion is no longer a, a core positive term. Um, debating is no longer a core value. This idea that like, if someone disagrees with you, winning them over to your side is sort of the ultimate victory, not really the thing anymore. And that's why I think you see the free speech problems on all these campuses. We see it as a problem because we think persuasion is a virtue, always. Debate is a virtue, an adversarial process where each side presents their best case and engages with the best arguments of the other side, all virtuous. But what happens when you have a generation that doesn't presume that virtue, um, and then I think you're you're where we are right now in 2022.
1: It's more
0: that nowadays people, when
1: when you say I want my party to win over more voters, um, no people will say, "Oh, I I want uh, politicians to reach out to voters who don't necessarily think the way I think," or you know who who people who are going to break the mold and do something different but at the same time i do think that words like like moderate or centrist are pretty much like dirty words in politics these days with the exception of among like you know not to deride the cocktail party elite or you know whatever phrase we want to use for it but the there are a lot of voters who hold views that are a little bit of column a and a little bit of column b but especially in primaries, the idea of, like, I'm going to win over the political center, that just sounds like code for I'm going to sell out all of my values, you know, to just try to, to you know, sound nice and make as many friends as possible. And that's also not really what a lot of voters want. So I think that's part of why it, it is baffling to me that persuasion is that people are like, oh, no, this is an election about turnouts, not about persuasion. When we're likely to see these huge gaps in some of these governor versus Senate races, not all of them,
0: but some of them, I mean, clearly there's someone out there who's persuadable. Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. I hope. Because I don't, I don't know how this works if we no longer have any value in persuading, because that means there is no point in talking to the other person. It also means there is no point in learning the other language. I mean, I talk about this a lot in uh, the comms perspective that I, you know, you can't be a good communications professional, the White House press secretary, whatever, unless you can make the opposing party's case as well as you can make your own. Um, And then I see, you know, this large thing in the New York Times about how today's comms people aren't doing that at all. They don't need to do that. They sit on Twitter and cable news and they are meant to be pure partisan advocates. They don't even really engage with reporters that much. They're really not so much communications directors as they are vice candidates. Um, they're the attack dogs out there uh, helping their candidate by making sure their candidate gets to be the good guy. And they're the ones who get to make all the you know crazy accusations and all the negative attacks. Um, and again, it's just more evidence that like we're, we no longer need to understand the other side because that's not the exercise we're in right now. And if anything, understanding the other side proves that you don't really believe your own side or you know, words are violence, all of this stuff, whether it's right or left, by the way, I feel like both sides are trending in that direction in a really concerning way. I got an
1: enormous amount of heat online, which did not make me sad or upset in any way, except for perhaps sad for our Beloved Republic, I did some. Uh, it was a focus group for the New York Times. They have been engaging me to do research on different types of American voters. I did, you know, I've done focus groups of young women and what they think about, you know, the the ripple effects of Me Too and life in, you know, the workplace in 2022. I've done focus groups of uh, moderate voters on Ukraine and so on and so forth. But there, I did one where it was a handful of conservative men, and actually like a, a racially and ethnically diverse group of conservative men talking about. Do they feel like there's a place for them in modern American society? And the existence of this focus group was like repellent and offensive to a handful of like a slice of a particular person who is very online. Like, How dare you elevate these voices or consider them even worth listening to? And like, that, I mean, if you are a smart progressive, you ought to be reading that transcript and like making notes to figure out how do I win these these people back? How do I try to find a way? Because these are folks that some of them I think would be, you know, some of them had voted for Obama in the past or what have you. Like, how do I win them back instead of going like, these people are terrible, get out of my face.
0: Yeah, we can't even quote platform them. You know, that that's in fact the problem. I don't want to hear what they have to say. And again, I think we pick on the Democratic Party because in some ways it's an easier line to draw because they're the ones, quote unquote, losing non-college educated voters. Now, particularly white voters right now, because that's such a large chunk of the electorate we focus on. But frankly, that's what's driving a lot of the shift in the Latino vote in Florida and Texas, for instance, and we'll see about Nevada. Um, and, and, And then as a response to losing this white non-college educated voter, the Democratic line seems to be, and we never want to hear from them again. Good riddance, but also we must win elections or else it's, you know, a statement on American democracy. It's like, well, it can't be both. You can't write off the largest plurality of voters in the country, but also say if you don't win elections, it's proof that there's voter suppression or whatever else going on. And again, this is happening on the right. It looks a little different, um, but. I just, I am concerned about the, the end of the debate, as one of our other friends called it. I think that the difference between the right
1: and the left on this is that people throw around the term the base a lot to mean a lot of different things. And so I think it's important, I will give you my definition of the base, because I think some people use it interchangeably with the word activists, and they are not the same. Um, So on the Republican side, they are often quite aligned. The base being your voters who regularly turn out. Hell or high water, they're going to go to the polls and they're going to cast a ballot and they are reliably going to cast a ballot for a Republican or right of center candidate. That is your base. Or for the Democratic Party, these are people that run a turnout, hell or high water, and they're going to vote for Democrats. The difference is on the right, the activists and the stuff that they're interested in is not always aligned with what the Republican base wants, but it tends to be relatively close. The activists may like dial it up to 11 and may take it a little too far. Maybe the priorities shift around their order a bit, but they're, they're not in alternate universes. But on the Democratic side, they're in some cases very much in alternate universes. That's how you have a Democratic activist class that talks about Latin X and, you know, whatever else. And then their Democratic base are like the voters in South Carolina that picked Joe Biden. Um, and so for Democrats, they've got an even bigger problem on this front, at least in the short term, in that their activist class and their actual base, the people who reliably turn out and vote Democratic, that's, that's not totally aligned. And that's part of what has given Republicans an opportunity with voters of color in this election.
0: Which is so interesting because you go back again to that post-2012 pre-2012 world and you've got the Tea Party on the one side and you've got Occupy Wall Street on the other side. Both parties had these um, urging movements, urging the party to pull in a certain direction toward them. And it feels very much like the Republican base is the inheritor of the Tea Party movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, Trump MAGA stuff, you can trace all of that back to its origins in Tea Party world the anger, a lot of it. Now, yeah, the fiscal responsibility and the debt and deficit, that all got chucked to the side, but there's still, again, like a straight line. But on the Democratic side, I look at Occupy Wall Street, which was fundamentally about class and about wealth and income inequality. It is hard for me to trace that now to the current progressive wing of the Democratic Party. It feels like, and... (laughs) I'm using here Marxism not as the pejorative, but simply as the descriptive of sort of all political movements can be explained by uh, wealth acquisition and class. That has been largely chucked out of the Democratic Party into critical race theory, frankly, and um, identity still as like this core ideology. And of course, identity can't really be your class because that can shift, or people have different, you know, they were born into one, they are now are in one. Um, And so it seems like the Occupy movement isn't a straight line to the progressive party of today. And that's another distinction that's interesting asymmetry.
1: Yes. And and I think that is where on the right there. And and some of this, I think, also has to do with when you're the party in power versus the party out of power. When You're the party out of power. It's so much easier for everyone to just agree on the premise that like we don't like Joe Biden as president. We think that he's moved the country in the wrong direction. We spent too much money. It's caused inflation. This is bad. Let's stop it. Like, you can get everyone to agree on that. Or on the Democratic side, what this has been part of why they've struggled so much in this midterm. It's like, what is their message? Is their message, just kidding, actually, the economy is really good? Is their message, sorry, the economy is bad, but we did some things that made it less bad? Is their message, sorry, the economy is bad and Republicans will make it worse? Like, it's not, it is easy for me in one sentence to say what the Republican message is in this midterm. Not every candidate does it. Some candidates get sidetracked by other issues. But generally, I can tell you in one sentence what that, that message is. I cannot tell you what that message is for, de- for Democrats. And that's, that's always like a blinking red, you know, alarm going off.
0: Fair enough. Um, what else are you working on these days? What else is happening in Kristen's life? Well, right now, I am, uh, I mean, the election is pretty much
1: the big thing that's dominating everything. Uh, And it's the question of, one, are the polls going to be right or not? And then two, what is all of this going to mean for the parties moving into 2024? Because the midterms are interesting to me. Um, But really, regardless of what the result is, I don't see it changing the policy direction of America a ton. Um, you might have, you know, if Republicans take the house, regardless of what happens in the Senate, there's not going to be a lot of legislation moving through that makes it to Biden's desk. You could have very big implications in terms of like what happens with the debt ceiling and so on and so forth. But 2024 becomes the really big ball game. And so I am really focused on trying to understand, you know, if Donald Trump runs, is it possible for him to be defeated in a Republican primary, uh, I think it would be think? a very tall. I think it's a <laughs> tall order, um, but not impossible. Uh, and then, same thing on the Democratic side: is Joe Biden going to run, or is his family going to sit down and have a very frank conversation with him about you know what you've you've done your four years, and or is that conversation not going to happen? And he's going to say, "I'm the only person out here who beat Donald Trump once. Let's try it again." And to me, 2024 is such a wild card. And it is baffling to me that we could wind up with a Biden-Trump rematch. That that's like, not even just like an unlikely outcome. That's like an actually a likely outcome.
0: Yeah, out of 330 um, million people, that's where we are.
1: Wild, wild. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, I'm, I'm already beginning to kind of turn my thoughts toward how do we understand, do the results of this midterm have any like second and third order effects that change what voters are interested in in 2024? That's, that's what I'm curious about.
0: I think the 2024 Senate map is fascinating and under talked about here in 2022 because you better believe Mitch McConnell knows exactly what that Senate map looks like in 2024. There is basically no way for Republicans to lose seats. And there is very, very much a way for Democrats to lose a lot of
1: red state Democrats, at least two
0: seats, maybe five. There's a world in which it's even higher than that. You've got for Republicans, Indiana will be an open Senate race, but it's a plus 10 R state. So, you know, Republicans have lost states like that before. Don't get me wrong. Um, Hi, Alabama. Uh, And then Texas and Florida. Those are the states that Republicans will be defending. On the Democratic side, Montana, West Virginia, Ohio, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Woo, okay. I can't wait to watch the
1: just mellow drama of Democrats trying to decide to what extent they put money into saving Joe Manchin or not. Like, I just think- It's going to be such drama.
0: It's going (laughs) to be like, there's, oh
1: my gosh. It's going to be such drama.
0: I think there's a world in which Joe Manchin doesn't announce he's a Republican, but he may leave the Democratic Party. But if they, like, this is going to be the
1: decision they have to make is like, you either back him Yep, knowing that he might not vote with you all the time, uh-huh. or you walk away and you just say, "Make that seat a Republican." Let's yep. just take it off the board. I mean, like that is going to be fascinating to watch. And same thing with uh, Kirsten Cinema, right? Like, does yes. she get? Pri- I mean, because if Joe, if if Joe Manchin gets primaried, it's hard for me to imagine another Democrat holding that seat. But like Kirsten Cinema could get primaried and even if some other Democrat came in. Yeah, they could still hold that
0: seat. Yeah, I mean, the Joe Manchin thing gets so interesting in that context of the persuasion, debate, conversation, because if you believe there's no point in talking to people who disagree with you, then somehow it is the case that they would rather have a Republican in that seat than a Democrat who doesn't vote with them all the time, which is nonsensical. It is truly an irrational desire, and yet it kind of fits within the current ethos. It's like the rhino Republican thing. I mean, Donald Trump saying in a general election, do not vote for the Republican candidate in Colorado. Why would that make any rational sense for a Republican, for uh, the sort of leader of the party? I don't know quite what you call a former president who's going to run again, probably, but maybe not and could be under indictment. What? I don't know. But for right now, I'll call him the leader of the Republican Party. Um, Yeah, that makes no sense. And yet.
1: Well, I will say as a counter you know, we have, we've just talked about all of these Democrats in red states who are going to face some real challenges in, in 2024. Um, but Republicans are uh, in some ways making interesting inroads in blue states. I mean, you could wind up with a Republican governor of Oregon kind of through a, a fluky, you know, third-party candidate situation, but that's a thing that could happen. Um, I would encourage your listeners to just keep an eye on Washington State on election night. For sure. I'm not like saying that I think Republicans are gonna win it, but I'm just saying keep an eye on it. Could could keep things uh, could keep things fascinating late into the night. Um and so I do think that Republicans have not just hunkered down in the red states, which is good. Um, But when you have a blue state, that that's where the primary process becomes very important to me, like making sure you actually emerge with a candidate who can be competitive instead of Doug Mastriano for, you know, governor in Pennsylvania, like that kind of a a thing. Um, Finding ways to avoid that is challenging. And that has always been uh, something that the quote unquote like evil D.C. Republican establishment has been focused on and has gotten burned on. In the past, um, you know, Marco Rubio famously was not endorsed by the NRSC. Uh, They endorsed then Charlie, uh, Congressman, or was he governor? What was he at the time? He was something. he's all the things. Charlie Crist uh, was who the NRSC had endorsed against this, like, Tea Party upstart in Marco Rubio. And now it's like, whoop, oops, just kidding. (laughs) Um, So, you know, sometimes when the National Party gets in and tries to noodle around, it's not
0: good. How would you poll a state like Alaska with nonpartisan primaries and then ranked choice voting? How does that look to a pollster other than, uh, like, uh, I don't know, an MC Escher drawing? Well, so Alaska has its own set of problems because, like,
1: time zone issues and challenges of contacting some people on the phone. I mean, like, Alaska is a whole specialized thing. So I do not do polls. I've not done a poll of Alaska. Um, I like there are some pollsters who are experts in it, and I am, I confess that I am not. But on the rank choice voting thing, I, we have done a lot of work on that at Echelon. And part of the way it works is like, especially with online surveys, you can structure them that to make it uh, so that people can sort of see what a ballot might look like. It's a little harder to do on the phone. I mean, on the phone, you can ask someone like, who would your first choice be? Okay, now let me read you the list of all the other people still left. Who's your second choice? It takes a lot of time in the questionnaire, but like that's one way you can do it. Um but it is, I, I mean, that, that for me, it winds up being like, let's go back to the Georgia example. That's the one where I think it's more challenging to ask people like a set of questions that are sequenced and actually get them to tell you what their future intentions would be. Um, you know, if you ask someone who is a Kemp voter, are you going to vote for Herschel Walker? Are you going to vote for Raphael Warnock? They might say like, Ugh, I don't like either of these candidates. I'm not going to vote for either one of them. But then if you, like, throw the hypothetical at them, like, what if it comes down to Georgia, Georgia's the last Senate seat on the board, it will decide control of the Senate, and it goes to this runoff in December, then will you turn out? Like, I mean, some of those people probably will, and they will probably pull the lever for one of those candidates that they otherwise dislike. Um, But it's hard in a survey to, like, walk someone through that hypothetical, walk your average voter through that hypothetical.
0: You are famous for your dog, your daily Wally's. Um, Wally is of Turkish descent. He is an integral part of your family.
1: He's, she, made,
0: he's made appearances here. We've, I've discussed him frequently
1: on The Remnant.
0: Yes. So remnant listeners are well aware of Wally pre-baby. And I'm curious, I feel like you in particular are a celebrity expert on integrating not a dog. Frankly, Wally is so much more than a dog. Integrating a beloved if geriatric family member (laughs) with a new baby. What advice do you have for people? What have been your hardest lessons, surprises along the way? So I'll confess this. I'll tell this story. It is a confession and it doesn't make me
1: look good, but I, 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 I think it's important to be honest with listeners. So before, <laughs> before, uh, before Baby Eliana was born, Wally could sense that something was up. That I was a large person, and something, something was going to happen. And a lot of the advice that we read on the good old internet said you should begin paying your dog a little bit less attention now, so that it's less jarring for them when the baby arrives. Oh no! And I was like under absolutely no circumstances. Am I paying Wally less attention in the lead up to this baby arriving? Are you kidding me? Um, and so then we come home from the hospital with the baby. Wally is, you know, very excited. Uh, you know, we're back. Yay. This is great. Oh, who is this little person you've got with you? Interesting. Um, and, and, By all accounts, is very is taken very well to the baby. Um, Sleeps outside her room from time to time. Sometimes we will break into her room in the night to go lay down next to the crib. It's all very adorable. But the very first night we were home from the hospital, that next morning rolls around and everybody's like still trying to get some sleep. Uh, And you sleep in weird pockets, strange hours. You know, it's like 10 a.m. and all of a sudden, my husband and I look at each other and we go, "Wait, have you fed Wally yet?" He's like, well, no, have did you? And it was like we had been telling Wally, who obviously speaks English and understands complete sentences, Wally, don't worry. We're not gonna forget you. We promise first day home. First morning that we are home from the hospital. We forgot until 10 a.m. that he needed like food and to go out to the bathroom. We have not forgotten since that was like a one-time only. I like my soul broke into realizing that I had failed as a, as a, you know, a taking care of, of poor Wally. Um, but he, he, he does, he had seemed more sad that he's not like the only center of attention. So we try very much to like bring him on the couch and give him snuggles when we can. But I guess my advice would just be, even if you think, oh, there's no way that person will be me. That person might be you, and that's okay. (laughs) That doesn't make you a bad person. It makes you someone grappling with the realities of suddenly having two delightful but somewhat helpless creatures that you love that you have to take care of. There's a finite amount of attention that you have. Reality will just kick in.
0: I will say, Wally always loves coming over to our house. You bring him over all the time. Um, He does seem to be lingering more than usual when you leave so he didn't want to leave your house i mean your house is his favorite place he
1: gets out of the car and he just prances right up (laughs) to the front door like oh yes i'm at my the actual house where people actually love me now um
0: (laughs) like normally he lingers a little bit to see like oh maybe we could stay a little longer you never know when there's gonna be food on the ground but this time it was more just like or i could stay and you could go
1: (laughs) because they love me here they'll pay attention to me yeah he's I mean, he's, he's realizing like where he's, he's getting more into the, the flow of things. I have also been failing more at daily Wally. So we got mm-hmm. Wally about four years ago and for three years and nine months, there was almost an uninterrupted string of once a day Twitter posts. I don't post as much as Jonah. It's not, you know, like five dog 10 dog pictures a day. I don't say that to criticize him. I love his pictures of his dogs. But I I have set a self-imposed limit of like usually one picture of Wally a day. It's and daily just to say Wally. how extreme
0: you are about this, the one picture a day, we also have done um, weekend slumber parties where like you'll come over on a Friday and we'll play board games until Sunday. And obviously Wally's there. And like you take daily Wallies. During board game play, to make sure that you would still have a daily Wally to put up.
1: Yeah, I mean, when he stays with other people, I have them send me pictures so that I can continue to to post about him. Um, but I've I've slacked in the last couple of weeks. There have been like day or two day long stretches where I haven't posted one, and so that's that's been bad. That one's on me. I'm trying to get better. Thank you, listeners, for letting me have my confessional. <laughs>
0: that's what this is here. (laughs) Um, where's the polling industry in 20 years, like way off. Are we still polling? I mean, I'm probably going to be teaching
1: AP government, coaching a debate team and like actually enjoying my career a great deal at that point. Uh, so who knows? Um, I, I mean, I think it's, I don't think phone polling will be happening anymore. It will be something online. Uh, whether it will be this like text to web, I think will depend on the extent to which text messaging may remains like a main method of communication, or does it get replaced by something else? I'm always reluctant to predict. Like, oh, we're going to be doing polling through Facebook because right, right, you know, but you now think suddenly we are we're going to be doing polling through TikTok? Or, heaven forbid, but. I'm reluctant to bet big on like what the technology will look like
0: 20 years from now. But you think it'll still exist? Like you think there will be an ability to do what you do, even as technology, regardless of what that technology may be, fractures further? I think there, here's why
1: I'm betting on it. I'm betting on it because I believe in markets and I believe in incentives and I believe in the insatiable desire for people to know what other people are thinking. Well, that's So as long as there is this hunger for knowing, what does everybody else think? And is it what I think? Or is everybody else wrong? Or am I the weird one? As long as there's that instinct deep down, I think we are highly likely to still see an interest in polling. And as long as there's an interest in polling and a market for accurate polling, resources will, will pour in to try to solve the problem. It does not mean it will be successful. But I I still believe that the art of trying to understand what your fellow man or woman thinks, 20 years from now, there will still be a robust hunger for that kind of information.
0: Okay, but then this leads me to my, I'm not even going to do the rant. I feel like everyone's heard the rant about issue polling. And you and I have had this conversation plenty. And you, of course, make all the good points about like, no, 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 you just have to take the poll for what it actually is and understand what it's not and all of that. Yes, yes, of course. But that's not how these things are getting reported, and presented, and fed, and yet they are unverifiable. This is the point I want to talk about. The unverifiableness of issue polls. How are we still doing something that is so unverifiable and then taking it as this gospel truth of what other people think? Dude, literally, the only type of polling that is verifiable is election horse race polling. Yes. Like, so, so it's and those not, this have turned not- out to be you know, on the one hand wrong, on the Mm -hmm. other hand, okay, there are three points wrong. If you do an issue poll with three points wrong, you would still know quite a bit, actually. Right, like, yeah. And and what people
1: also forget is they think of like, oh, polling is off. We can't get people to take polls. And they think of that purely in this like political polling context. The vast majority of opinion research that is done out there is not done about politics. It is done about the stuff you're buying on the shelf when you go to Target. It is about the the new products that are being rolled out. It is about the ads that you are seeing on TV for everything but politics. Market research is such a massive industry. We send people at my company, Echelon, to get trained to become focus group moderators. And the training center here in D.C., this is Washington, D.C., the company that runs the training center here, almost all of the training is around, like, how do you conduct focus groups around, like, which candy bar tasted better? Describe that the mouthfeel of this chocolate to me, like those kinds of questions, right? Like, who? How do you talk to retirees who are trying to decide where to buy a new home? That is overwhelmingly what the research industry does, and that is completely unverifiable because at least with political polling, you have an election at the end of the day that tells you one way or the other was your your research accurate? Where all of this other stuff, industries billions of dollars being spent like it's all on people crossing their fingers and hoping that it's right
0: all right i want to give you the last word on exit polling i know you have feels Uh, i know you're going to tweet the feels she's already her shoulders are tensing up her (sighs) neck has disappeared but you know what you have a captive audience right now tell them about the exit polls and don't just rant about the exit polls explain why uh the initial exit polls that are unweighted are useless. Early exit polls are bad. They're bad. They're bad. They're bad. Early exit
1: polls. Everybody, listen to me. Look. Okay, there are there are a couple of different exit polls this year. Um, I may be a little there may be one other network that like spun off and is doing its, its own thing, but I'll stick to the two consortium that I consortia that I know the most about. So Fox News and the Associated Press broke away from the other networks and they began doing their own poll. It's called the AP votecast. Fox brands it the Fox News Voter Analysis. It's the same poll, they just have different names, um, but they're partners together on it. And it is a survey that is largely done before Election Day, um, or it's 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 not a survey where it's like people standing outside of polling places with clipboards saying, hey, tell me who you voted for. It is more like a traditional survey just conducted at large scale um, and includes a lot of interviews that lead up to Election Day in addition to calls and stuff being done on the day of. Um You then also have the the national election pool, which is most of the big major networks. I should disclose, I'm a contributor at CNN. I believe they're still part of the the pool. It is run by Edison Research. And theirs has, at least in past years, been more dependent on the, like, let's have people standing outside of polling locations and asking every 10th person that comes out, who'd you vote for? Please fill out this questionnaire. Here's what people need to realize. The exit polls, at least those latter ones, The data comes in, and let's say I went to a precinct that broke 60% for Biden, 40% for Donald Trump. But the person standing outside that precinct was interviewing people, and they interviewed five Trump voters, and they interviewed five Biden voters. So my poll of that precinct shows it 50-50. But when the votes are all counted, we actually know that the real result was 60-40. So the exit polls are a work in progress over the course of election night. You have the unweighted early returns, and then as actual votes are counted, the the exit polls themselves are like balanced back to match what we know from the results.
0: Doesn't that just mean that exit polling in general is pretty meh?
1: So it, it means that exit polling is a very good way to understand what happened in the election after the election is over. And it is dicey as a way to understand what is going to happen in the election once the polls close. So it is like it's predictive power on election night is eh, uh, but it's it's actually good. I love looking at the exit polls a week later because it can help me unpack who won and what, you know, who, why did someone win, what voter groups moved, et cetera. Like that stuff's interesting. But every year someone leaks on Twitter or claims or like the Drudge used to do this a lot back when Drudge was a thing, like early exits say Republicans, red wave happening across America and people would be like, they just couldn't help themselves. They'd hit that little retweet button. Like, oh, look, I'm sending information into the world. about Don't do it. Don't do it. Stop, drop and roll. When you see early exit poll data, walk away this is not a drill, folks. Don't share it. It's bad. The analogy that I use is it's like bacon. When cooked, delicious. Raw, you don't want to eat it. That's how you should think of exit polls.
0: Surely I'm not the only person who, as a child, decided to eat raw bacon to test that theory. I did not believe it. Go. And then my dad explained to me how intestinal worms <laughs> and parasites work. And then I was convinced I had intestinal parasites because I ate raw bacon. I guess to this day, I don't know that I don't, but I I think I'm good. He explained like the eggs and that you have to cook away the eggs of the parasites. It was like, I think more than I needed. I think just a simple, like, don't eat the raw bacon. But I guess he had already said that and I still ate the raw bacon. So then I got a very scientific. It's not sushi. Yeah, it's not. I I hear that now. I get it. Okay. Um, I think the exit polling thing, by the way, is an even more important warning this time, especially from what we learned in 2020, where when the early vote gets counted or the early vote doesn't get counted and it can skew partisanly early on election night, just because one party's up or down or the exit polls show X or Y doesn't mean that then when that person ends up losing, that somehow the election was rigged. And I'm sure we'll unfortunately have lots to talk about. On the back end of that, as we once again explain how votes get counted in this country, why exit polls aren't a way to show that the election was clearly rigged, et cetera. But until then, Kristen Soltis-Anderson, thank you. Bestie. Thank you for having me. See you next time. No, you won't. This is my podcast.